just read through the passage first, then I'll pray, and then we'll, then we'll study. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered there so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they, had um, that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as we come to your word tonight, Lord, that you would be graceful and merciful upon us, Lord, and you would enable me to effectively teach the truth of your word, Lord, that your spirit would speak to hearts here and to hearts listening, Lord, and that you would have your way amongst us. You would change hearts, change minds, and reveal yourself to us that you might be glorified in our midst today. Amen. Okay, so we finished chapter one, and chapter one was very foundational for the whole of Mark's gospel. Um, we've seen a few things that are very significant, but let me just take you back briefly as we've been away for a while, just for sake of context, to the end of the prologue in chapter one and verse uh, 14 and 15, just after the uh, prologue has been completed. Uh, Jesus comes to Galilee, he's proclaiming the gospel of God, saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. And so the ministry of Jesus is at this stage to go out and to proclaim the good news, proclaim the gospel, proclaim that the kingdom of God is at hand and to call on people to repent and to believe. And we discussed that at the time. Um, what is interesting then is that when he heals many uh, later, he goes about, he does the healing, he has his authority, and his fame spreads and, and what have you. And then in verse 35 and following, he gets up in the morning, he goes to a desolate place, and everyone is looking for him. And he says to them in verse 38, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in the synagogues and casting out demons. And so Jesus has almost by default has this healing ministry because he has the authority to heal and because he has compassion. And 
So when we have the initiation of his ministry, the baptism of Jesus, we have the first disciples. The first miracle he did that we saw in chapter 1 was the casting out of an unclean spirit. And he's there in the synagogue and he's preaching and this unclean spirit comes through in this man and interrupts him. And so he casts the spirit out. And everybody's amazed at the authority of his preaching, and they're amazed at the authority he has to cast out the demon. Then what happens is in the next section, he heals uh, Simon's, or Simon Peter's mother-in-law, and she has a fever and, and he heals uh, and what have you. And then because presumably the word got out, he heals many who were sick with various diseases and he casts out demons. And that all happens in one day. So I'm just trying to give you an, over, an overview here and a flow, okay? He comes and he says, I'm here to preach. A demon interrupts his preaching and he casts the demon out. So he can preach effectively. Then he heals Simon Peter's mother-in-law privately and word gets out of the demon being cast out. Word gets out, presumably, of the healing as well. And everybody's bringing those who they think are demon-possessed and those who, are, who need healing to him, and he's overwhelmed by it. So rather than having a lie-in the next day, which is what I typically do after a hard day, he, as an alternative to that, he gets up early, and he goes and he spends time alone, distances himself and spends time in prayer. And everybody wants him, and he comes back. And, he, and after his time of prayer, he says, no, no, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm supposed to be preaching and casting out demons. And it seems that the casting out of demons is somehow linked to the preaching in that demons might interrupt the preaching, they might hinder his work, and it seems that he's focused on getting the message out rather than the healing. And then the chapter ends in uh, 40 and following with the, the healing of the leper, which is a very bizarre healing, and we dealt with it at length, and um, it's not available online yet, but when it is, I really encourage you to catch up with it. It was pretty heavy stuff and quite difficult, but we, we worked our way through it. But the long and short of it is, is that um, in verse 41, most versions will say that Jesus was moved with pity or compassion. But there's another variant within Greek text that says he was moved with anger. And I've argued quite well, I think, hopefully, last time we were in Mark, that he was moved with anger. And that the issue was that this leper could have given the impression of making Jesus unclean, or even made him unclean in a ceremonial sense. And, and that Jesus rebuked him for that, and then he reaches out and touches him and makes him clean. And the issue being that Jesus is touching the leper rather than the leper touching Jesus. And so Jesus can use his cleanliness to make the unclean man clean rather than the other way around. And it's all about appearance. It's, about, it's not, not in, this, in the sense of something outward that doesn't matter, but in the sense of it's an illustration to people. And specifically, he then casts out the man who's been healed. Very interesting that the phrase here, sent away, is literally in the Greek, cast out. The same expression used of casting out a demon. That the man was cast out and told, go and present yourself. Go and present yourself to, uh, the, um, to the priest and do what is required of you as an offering to Moses. And as we said last time we were in Mark, there was a 
uh, a scriptural procedure for what somebody had to do when they were healed of leprosy. An entire chapter of the book of Leviticus was given up to it. And it had never been used. Never been used. Miriam was healed of leprosy, but uh, she was healed, we think, before the giving of Mosaic law. And there was the Syrian who was healed by Elijah of, of, of leprosy, but he wasn't a Jew and he wasn't under Mosaic law. And this is the first time that it had ever been used. And because it had never been used, the Pharisees taught in their own writings that the reason it had never been used is because the healing of a leper was a special miracle that only the Messiah would be able to do. So Jesus is very insistent in the same way that he has authority to cast out a demon, in the same way that the Spirit cast him out into the wilderness, if you remember that sermon in chapter 1 and verse 13, the Spirit cast Jesus into the wilderness. Um, Jesus is casting this man to the priest because of his authority to do so and the importance of this man presenting himself before the priest to prove that Jesus is Messiah. But the man doesn't do it. And you can see why Jesus was frustrated with this man. Here is a man who is pushing towards Jesus. I want to be healed. I want to be healed. I want to be healed. And in doing so, is actually revealing not his faith in Jesus so much as his own selfishness. Because when Jesus, with authority, casts him off to the priest, he doesn't go. And he instead goes and tells everyone, says, hey, look how I've been healed. Now, that is all very, very important. I want to just finally, in my wrapping up of chapter 1, just repeat verse 45, which is because this man goes out and freely talks about it, Jesus can now no longer openly enter a town, but was in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. So Jesus has been swamped by people who want to be healed, right? He has a quiet prayer time, he comes back from it and he says, I'm preaching and casting out demons and that's it. Then the leper pretty much forces himself upon Jesus. Jesus is angry about this, but he heals him, makes sure that the leper is sent to the priest. The, le priest, the, the leper never goes to the priest, the former leper now, never goes to the priest. He goes and tells everybody, and now Jesus is swamped all over again by people who want to be healed. So when we come to chapter 2, we need to understand here that this is, you know, chapter headings are later editions. This is the story that directly follows the end of chapter 1, and there's a parallel here, and there's a connection between the two. Because at the end of chapter 1, we have the leper who pursues Jesus and says, I need to be healed, I need to be healed. And now we have the paralytic whose friends in a similar way, a very similar way, force Jesus, the hymn upon Jesus to be healed. And we'll see the, the similarities and the differences between these two stories as we go. So, with all that in mind, chapter 2 and verse 1, and he returned to Capernaum after some days. And Capernaum, for this period of his ministry, it seems to be Jesus' pr uh, predominant base. Um, it was reported that he was at home. In other words, the word got out that Jesus was back. He's, he is, people are coming to him from every quarter, end of chapter 1, and he returns to Capernaum. No breaks in the text. Remember, the chapter breaks are artificial. Everybody wants him, so he sneaks back to Capernaum, and then the word gets out that he's home. 
literally in the house. It could be that it was his home. It was more likely that it's the home of uh, Simon Peter, where they were previously, and that that became Jesus' home in so much as it became a base for his ministry. But he's essentially snuck back. And word gets out that he's there, and so in verse 2, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. So everybody's turned up. Now, why have they turned up? We know why they've turned up. They want to be healed. Just like previously, this is, this is what the demand is for. So this is where this first, um, first passage in chapter 2 parallels with the previous time he was in Capernaum where the house is swamped. And because it's swamped, he goes away. And now he comes back again and it's swamped again. So we have all these people coming for healing. So what does he do to all these people who want healing? Does he heal them all? No, he preaches to them. It's interesting. It's so easy to just superficially read over all of this and just see, oh, Jesus heals, Jesus heals, Jesus heals, and just think that that is what he's trying to do and miss the main point that's going on here, which is that Jesus' ministry here was to proclaim the kingdom of God being at hand. The kingdom of God is now yours. Repent of your sins and believe. And that's what he's doing. He's preaching. Now, just as an aside... Wouldn't that have been good to have heard? I mean, Jesus is preaching. He's preaching the Bible. He's quoting to them, almost certainly from memory, and he's reading to them and explaining Old Testament passages about the kingdom of God, explaining his arrival, perhaps defining his messiahship. And they're there just listening to him. They came for healing, but they're getting something far, far better. You see, he wants to heal them, but he wants to heal them from their sin. He wants to heal them from their eternal destiny. He wants to bring them salvation. And so that's what he's doing there. And they came, oops, pardon me, they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. I'm just going to move this down a little bit so it's not so loud um, they, they brought to him a paralytic oh sorry they came bringing a paralytic carried by four men so there is a man who is paralytic he cannot walk okay so there's four friends who are bringing him so we see later that he is in a, what's described in the text as a bed I think a better translation may well be a stretcher uh, bed might give the wrong impression in our mind's eye a stretcher would be a closer thing to what he has but if you imagine one of each of them carrying a handle in the four corners that's probably how he was brought and when uh, And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Okay, so everyone's turning up because Jesus is going to is Jesus going to heal. Here, these guys arrive amongst everybody else and they can't get anywhere. Now, I remember the days when my kids were young and I was trying to get around town with a with a uh, buggy. Do you call them a stroller over here? Stroller, yeah? Trying to get help. And for a long time, because we had kind of younger children close together, we had double stroller. You'll know all about the double strollers, right? So, so we had these double strollers. And 
when, it, when it's busy in a town and you're going to different stores and stuff, you know, it's tough enough sometimes as it is, just by yourself. When you've got a double stroller, it's a lot harder. If you're pushing someone in a wheelchair, it's a lot harder. Can you imagine these guys? Everyone's just crowding this front door. You can't even get to the front door. And they're trying to carry someone on this four of them. So they just can't do it. So what they do is they go around the back of the house. Now, the way these house, houses were built is they had flat roofs. Now, the roofs were built by uh, the use of um, beams going across the top. And then on top of those beams, it was kind of thatched. And there was thickly packed mud that was used to hold it all together. Now, Luke speaks about tiles. And some people think that he is talking um, not literally in tiles, in the sense that we think of tiles, but he's talking about the mud and the thatch being made into tiles. And he's using the terminology because he's writing to a more Hellenistic Greek audience who would have been familiar with tiles and maybe not familiar with the kind of roofs they had. Whether it was a rich house that had tiles, whether it was a house that was just thatched with mud, it doesn't really matter. It's a flat roof. And, and these roofs would have ladders that went up to them because they were used, like most Americans use their garage, which is not for cars at all, obviously, but for storage. And people would store things on the roof. And when it was hot in the summer, in the daytime, they would often put fruit and stuff up on there to, to dry it, to preserve it. Like sun, you know, we have sun-dried tomatoes and stuff here, you know, you can buy. They would dry their, their food. And at nighttime, sometimes, when it was very hot, they didn't have air conditioning, obviously, in those days. And so sometimes they would even sleep on the roof at night. So the roof was used and there was access to it. And it was accessed by a ladder. Now, I'm not great with ladders, I'm not great with heights, and I'm, 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 you know, I'm not the sort of person that wants to stand on top of a ladder and try and do a light bulb or something like that, you know, it's not my forte. Um, but can you imagine a, a practically how you get a stretcher that four people are carrying with a guy on it up a ladder without him falling off? I mean, that I would like to see. I mean, I'd love to see someone make a, a movie of this scene just so I can see how they do it. I mean, it would have been difficult. It would have been really tricky. You know, a couple of steps at a time, reaching up, getting around, and what have you. A very difficult thing to do. Probably a few close calls, and the paralytic, uh, presuming his mouth, you know, worked, screaming at them, you know, ah, careful, no, left, right, up, down. You know, just, just trying to, to do it. So it was... My point is it was a palaver, it was, it, was, it was difficult, it was awkward, and it was problematic. Then, when they get on the flat roof, okay, bearing in mind, where are we, house-wise? Probably the house of Simon Peter, the house that Jesus lived in, right? If it was full because of Jesus being there and maybe other disciples being there, maybe at night some of them slept on the roof. It would have been fully used, the house. And they start taking the roof apart. That's, that's, ah, uh, what do the Jews call it? Chutzpah, you know, just that, that's, that's having some guts there to do that. That's bold uh, to go and take the roof apart. And when Jesus 
when they bring Jesus down, when Jesus saw their faith, he says to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now we're going to deal with this and, and the, uh, the, the reaction and the healing and all this in a minute. But for now, I want you to see that the thing that's so often missed, and I read through commentaries and even, it doesn't even draw attention to this, but the, the contrast and the parallels between the last story and this story. And again, no chapter breaks in the original. This just one followed the other. In, in the end of chapter one, there's a leper coming to Jesus, pushing himself upon him, and, and Jesus reacting almost quite negatively to him and not being impressed with the guy in, in many different ways. Now we have an almost, to our eyes, identical situation whereby um, these people are going very much out of their way almost more aggressively so, to, to lower this guy down and put him in front of him. And Jesus' response is positive. What's the difference? Well, I think there are a couple of differences. In our mind's eye, in, in the way that we look at it, to take apart somebody's roof and cause criminal damage, it, it, it's, a, it's a, you know, I'm not sure it would be, be criminal on their time, but... To, to do that, to go to that extreme, that would be a worse thing than reaching out to Jesus, which is what the leper did, right? That would be worse. But you see, from Jesus' perspective, the leper reaching out, as I tried to argue last, last time we were in Mark, the leper reaching out would have been the leper potentially making Jesus at least to be perceived as unclean in the eyes of the Jewish leaders. And therefore, he's crossing a line of, of, of a, a spiritual line of disobedience from our perspective. Whereas with these guys, they're going to every length and measure they could go, but they're not doing anything that violates the law. Now, this is why I corrected myself a moment ago. If you took apart my roof or I took apart your roof, then that would be against the law, <laughs> American law. But it would be criminal damage. But at, at that point, the issue is Mosaic law. And in the law of Moses, um, assuming they put the roof back together again afterwards, this wouldn't have been an issue. And so the point is that these guys went to a greater extreme, but they didn't violate God's law. And I think that this, this is the key difference. The leper violated, was, was trying to violate, was, was, was um, in the process of violating God's law. He was a leper, he was supposed to be apart, he was supposed to be separate, and he was coming and potentially making all sorts of other people unclean. These guys are, are, uh, are doing it with the right motive because they're doing it within the confines of God's law. Now, when Jesus sees a leper, potentially breaking God's law, he's angry with him, and he sends him off and tells him to go and obey God's law, and he doesn't still. Because Jesus knew the heart of this guy by what he did in the first place. He begins the story, the leper, by violating God's law, and he ends the story by violating God's law. There's a degree of consistency. So the issue here is that with these guys, Jesus sees their hearts. 
he sees the heart, and I think that he sees the faith of the friends, we're told, specifically. But obviously the paralytic man is almost represented by his friends. He's the one saying, left, right, take me here, I want to be here, go there. And, and so it is that Jesus is um, seeing the positive in them because they're not violating any of Mosaic law. And we're going to see it becomes very, very important for Jesus to keep the Mosaic law and to be observing the Mosaic law. And the issue that he has is not with the law of Moses. He has an issue with the law of the Pharisees, which is a different thing. We'll talk more about that as we come to it. But so his response is very different because the heart of the people coming to him are very different as well. That's the issue. Now, here's the similarity with the leper story. Here's the similarity. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there, verse 6, questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God? So, classic scribes. This is important. The scribes are there, and they're like, Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. This is classic Jesus. He knows the scribes are there. He knows the scriptures. He knows their response. He knows what they're going to think. And he says it anyway. Just, you know, I think sometimes in churches, offending people is considered the most grievous of sins. If that were the case, then Jesus would never be welcome because he used to go out of his way to do it constantly. He would, he would offend people to expose their hearts and expose their thinking. And these, these scribes are there, and he's aware that they're there, and so he says, son, your sins are forgiven, and the scribes respond. And they say, who can forgive sins but God? He, they think he's blaspheming because he's declaring himself to be able to do something that only God can do. Now, in a sense, they're right. In Isaiah uh, I'll just read it to you briefly in Isaiah 43 and verse 25, uh, 25. God says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. God, they're, they're right. They know their scripture. God alone can forgive sins. I think the issue with Jesus here, and I don't think even Jesus is forgiving them on the basis of his deity. I think Jesus is forgiving them here because he has authority to do so. God is the one forgiving. God the Father is forgiving their sins. But Jesus is, is the one who sees their heart to allow them to... Uh, to, to uh, Jesus sees their heart and therefore is allowed to make a pronouncement on behalf of the Father. But you can see their response. And immediately, that's... John's uh, boom word, isn't it? And that, that's, that's Mark, uh, sorry, John, Mark's boom word. Mark's taking the focus. And immediately, Mark's kind of, it's like a, a camera shift. It's a scene change. Mark's putting our focus. So this is where we, we focus now. He's putting our attention here. Immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus question within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up, uh, take your bed, and walk. Now, uh, that immediately puts our focus here. This is the main point of the passage. Everything else so far is building up to this point, okay? And I said that we're going to show you the similarity with the story of the leper, and we are, we're getting there. This is what this section is doing, okay? Uh, 
Jesus is now engaging with the Jewish leaders, with the scribes. Now remember the problem at the end of the passage with the leper. The problem at the end of the passage with the leper was he was cast out and sent off to go and present himself and make his sacrifices before the priest because that's what the law of Moses required him to do. He didn't do it. Okay? If he had done that, then Jesus takes something that clearly, mostly, for the main part, is not what he's supposed to be doing right here, which is uh, uh, healing. He's not supposed to be doing healing, he's supposed to be preaching. Jesus will take that healing that was forced upon him by the leper, and he'll use that healing as a demonstration, as a preaching, as a message to the Jewish leaders. When, and again, if you weren't here for the last time we remark, when the person who was healed of leprosy presents themselves to the priest and says, hey, look at me, I'm healed from leprosy, that's not it. There is an initial sacrifice, then they have to go off and investigate, find out everything that is said has been true, to find out the background and the history, and if it's then shown that he is, then a week later they come back and they make a bigger sacrifice. There's a whole, there was a whole a process by which the Jewish leaders would have been forced to investigate Jesus and find out that he did something that they themselves taught that only the Messiah would be able to do. In other words, he didn't want to heal, he wanted to teach, but by he took a healing that was forced upon him and he was going to use that to teach, to teach the Jewish leaders and to make a point. It failed. It failed because the man was disobedient. And their effect was the negative of what Jesus wanted, which was everybody coming for healing. They all come for healing. He resists that urge, and he basically says, I'm going to preach to you. Then he has the same situation again. A healing is pretty much forced upon him, and he's going to use it again in the same way as he was going to use it, the healing of the leper. He's going to use it to prove something to the Jewish leaders. And that's why he's healing, partly because of the faith of these people, but mostly immediately focus the main point here is the response of the jewish leaders and them being told something and them being shown something so they think that jesus is responded badly he understands he perceives in his spirit god has revealed to him the father has revealed to him um, remember although jesus was divine he was god incarnate he was as much god as the father is god he pre-existed before the creation of time itself with the father for all eternity he nevertheless didn't have omniscience in his human life we are told specifically later in the gospel of something that jesus didn't know so whether he knew this because he was god or whether he knew it because the father revealed it to him i suspect the latter um, nevertheless, he did know in a way that wouldn't be known naturally that they were questioning. And so the question he asked them is a Jewish rabbinical type of question. The rabbis would have a certain form of logic and they would argue in a way from the lesser to the greater. That's why he says to them, look, what is easier? Is it easier to say, hey, your sins are forgiven? Or is it easier to say, Get up your mat, take up your mat and walk? Well, in a sense, it's a trick question. And I don't think that Jesus is unaware of the fact that there's two answers to this question. On the one hand, it's a lot easier to say, hey, your sins are forgiven. Right? 
because there's no proof that anyone's sins are forgiven. You can just say it. Makes no difference if they are or not, right? But if you say, take up your mat and walk, that's harder because then they're going to have to take up their mat and walk to prove that what you're saying is true. So that's the harder. But in another sense, of course, to forgive someone's sin is harder than healing them. And that, I think, is deliberately an ironic twist by Mark because that's something he's going to prove through to the end of the gospel with the crucifixion and the resurrection. So, but for now, the main point that Jesus is saying, look, I've just said your sins are forgiven. Anyone can say your sins are forgiven. But if I say, take up your mat and walk, that would be a little bit harder, wouldn't it? So he's using their form of questioning, their form of logic to make his point. So, in verse 10 he says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. So, the, almost the aside he said to the paralytic, that's just, that's just for us to know. I don't think Jesus, you know, that's the, the uh, mark has stuck that in. Jesus, if you can picture it in your head, he says, what's easier? Rise, pick up your mat and walk. And then he turns to him and says, rise, pick up your mat and walk. It's quite a nice little scene there, you know. Is it easy to do it? He just turns and he does it. But he says why he's doing it. He says that you would know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Now this is really important. The, 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 the title Son of Man is something that Mark is going to pick up in a lot more detail in chapter 8. In this phase of his ministry, it's really not the focus. But it's interesting that at this early stage we have this brief use of it, the term Son of Man. Son of Man uh, originates from the book of Daniel in chapter 7. Um, we should probably turn there actually. Let's, let's turn briefly to, to Daniel chapter 7. or I can read it if you, if you don't want to turn there. Um, but in, in Daniel 7 and verse 13 it says I saw in night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man okay so the first thing to note is that Daniel saying that the one who came is like a son of man now a son of man simply means one who is descended from man so it, it's you know it's one who is a human. It's the person there coming appears human, right? And he came to the Ancient of Days. Well, we know who the Ancient of Days is. That's God. That's Yahweh, right? Yes? And he was presented before him. And to him, to this Son of Man, to this man, to this human, to this person, the Ancient of Days gives to him, it was to him given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. <coughs> this is the Messiah. And when the prophets speak about the kingdom of God and the Messiah ruling and reigning, this is very clear that the Messiah is coming and he is a human. And he is the one whom people are going to serve. He is the one that's going to be given a kingdom. And he's the one whom the king, whose kingdom will never end. The Messiah, there's no doubt in the mind of the scribes that this funny old guy who's turned up on the scene, this Nazarene of all people, has no authority to forgive sins. And they know that from the scripture. But they also know the Messiah surely does have authority to forgive sins. The Son of Man was given dominion. 
Oh, that all peoples, nations, languages would serve him. His kingdom's never ending. That Messiah, that Son of Man, he has the authority to forgive sins. So Jesus, in response to them, he does not disagree that an average person doesn't have the authority to forgive sins. What he is saying to them is, well, but you agree that the Messiah does have the authority to forgive sins. And he says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to do so. So what he's doing is he's showing himself to be the Son of Man. He's showing himself to be the Messiah. He's showing himself to be the one who has that authority by doing the deeds that the Messiah was prophesied to do in the kingdom, such as healing the sick. And so he says to the man, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and again, boom, immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So Mark in this text, he gives us all this rambling introduction and he says, now focus. These guys have an issue with Jesus. It's an issue of authority. And Jesus deals with that issue. He says, I'm the son of man. I've got authority to do this. Let me prove it to you. Boom, Mark takes our focus and now the guy gets up and walk, thus proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Showing that he has the authority and showing that this man's sins are forgiven. Now, from us theologically, from us theologically speaking, there are questions regarding the, the declaration of forgiveness. Because did this man profess his sins? Did he repent? What did he do? Some people have implied that there's some sort of implication, perhaps, that the man was paralyzed because of his sin. I don't think that's the case here at all. What we're seeing is we're seeing people pursuing Jesus because of their faith in him and their belief in who he was. The difference with the leper is his pursuit of Christ was an ungodly pursuit. And because of that, Jesus resists him initially. With these guys, the pursuit is not ungodly, and their pursuit of Christ is, um, is evidence of their faith. Sometimes, I think, in our church circles, we are too bothered about the precision of exact words. Let's make sure they repeat the sinner's prayer after us, just to make sure that they're really saved. Listen, if someone's not pursuing Christ... If someone doesn't care for what God says is right or wrong, if someone's not concerned about the things of God, they can say any prayer of any words that you like and they're not going to be saved. In the same way, if somebody is pursuing Christ and they know that he is their only hope and their only answer, if they believe him to be who the scriptures say he is, then they don't see any words at all because their hearts will be saved. Pursue Christ. Simple as that. And so Jesus is simply recognizing the situation. He proclaims the man healed, and the man is healed as well, both in body as in his soul and his heart. And so the man gets up, he picks up his bed, and he went out before them all. 
And so they were all amazed and they glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. And again, we have a parallel here with what's already gone, because when he was in the synagogue, in the very first public miracle he did in the synagogue, he's preaching, they're amazed at his preaching. He then has this demon-possessed man who comes in and starts talking at Jesus, and he casts the demon out, and they're amazed at that as well. And here again, we have him being amazed. And so the, the three things that have really happened in this gospel so far, the preaching, the healing, and the, and the exorcism, these three things have all amazed people. They are amazed at who Christ is. Now, I want you to note this very carefully. When Jesus preaches, they're automatically amazed at who he is. When a demon comes in and he casts out the demon, they're amazed at who he is. But with the healing, it's when the healing is done on Jesus' terms, and the healing is done to show something to the religious authorities, that they're then amazed. They're amazed not simply at what he's done, and I think Mark gives the amazement to this, because what he has done is not simply to heal someone. That's the whole point of the passage, is that it's not simply about being healed. It's the fact that the healing is specifically showing what the leper should have shown, which is that Jesus is the Messiah. And he's trying to show the religious authorities that he's the Messiah. Why? Because he's come to Israel and say, I'm the Messiah, this is my kingdom, it's at hand, it's within grasp, it's ready for taking. Repent and come be part of the kingdom. And if the religious leaders reject that, then it's going to be rejected. And as we're going to see as we progress in the next few chapters, the religious leaders do reject that. And a lot of people miss out on the kingdom because they follow their religious leaders. I spoke over Christmas about my concerns that we don't raise a bunch of pastor parrots. It's not your job to take me at my word and to repeat what I say. I'm trying to teach you scripture as I see it. And I hope that if you disagree, you got, you know, Get your evidence, come and argue with me in a friendly manner. Let's debate the word. You know, I'm not infallible and I will never be offended by people coming to me and having an issue with something I've taught. Let's go and let's, let's talk about it. Because I don't have authority, the scripture has authority. And the, the danger is, is that we simply become people who, uh, who repeat Repeat, repeat, and we don't think for ourselves. And if one thing that the Jewish leaders in Jesus' day told us is it's dangerous to follow leaders for leaders' sake. It, you, you follow someone, you, you go where they go. The blind follow the blind and they all end up in a ditch. That's what happens. So it's all well and good having people that you trust, that you follow, but even when you trust people, know that everybody's fallible. I'm fallible. You're fallible. We're all fallible. Every pastor or preacher that you, you could listen to is fallible. And therefore, you've just got to make your own decisions and think for yourself. I think far too many Christians today uh, place themselves in a situation where they follow leaders because they're too lazy to do the work for themselves. 
That isn't to say that you're supposed to put in the amount of time I put into study. I, I get to do that and you guys thankfully pay for me to do that so that I can do that for you. And you should trust me to a degree. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, is that we can't blindly follow people as an excuse not to think for ourselves. Think for yourself. Challenge what's been said. Search the scriptures and, and check that everything I've referenced and said is true. Go and follow up and what have you. Because ultimately we're all responsible for our actions. And the reality is, is the Jewish leaders who were shown in this passage clearly that Jesus was the Son of Man. They, re they rejected him. And many, 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 many people in Israel, the majority of Israel, joined them in their rejection. And as a result of that, the temple was destroyed, they were cast out, they were sieged, and, and they lost everything. They lost the temple, they lost the land. But this man, this man was saved. Whatever happened to Israel, he was part of a kingdom that would have no end. We all need to pursue Christ for ourselves. Even when we have good leaders, we have to pursue Christ for ourselves. So they were amazed at what he, he did, and that amazement is going to lead on. And next time, uh, we're going to see the coming of another disciple that's going to parallel the previous calling of disciples. Again, there'll be similarities, and again, there'll be differences. So next time, we'll be back in... Uh, next Sunday evening, to look at the call of Levi. So, but for now, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this scripture. And Lord, I ask that, uh, that Lord, that your word would penetrate our hearts, that these things would just be turning over in our minds, that we would evermore be coming to an understanding of you, of your son, of your ways, of your word, and that we might be transformed by it. And Lord, we thank you that you've given us your word, that we might know you better. And I thank you for those who've come out tonight after the morning service as well, just to, to pursue you more. Lord, may you bless them richly, and Lord, may you bless our week, and may we bring glory to you. Amen.